We love him now, we'll love him forever, and we will be able to share that with him. We can show him and tell him now, we'll be able to express our love to him forever. Thank you for the music, thanks team for the music, and thanks everyone for your singing to the Lord that's beautiful, encouraging to all of us, and I know is uh, honoring to him. I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, please, in your Bibles, Romans chapter 12. So over the past couple of months, I've been thinking about after the first of the year and what I would be sharing from God's Word as we spend time together here on these Sunday mornings. I have asked a few of you what you think I should preach on, and the answer I got was, I don't know. <laughs> so, But I know I've asked a few of you to pray for me about that, and, and I do appreciate that. I've had some conversations with... Uh, and I'm going to go right ahead and call him Pastor Dan. I've had some conversations with Pastor Dan and uh, discussed this. And, and actually, uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking and uh, the idea of looking together at these chapters in the book of Romans, Romans chapters 12 through 16, came up in our conversation. And as I looked at it and thought about where you are, where we are as a church, I thought that is very fitting And there are some truths, there are some instructions, there are some challenges for us in these chapters that I think can be very, very helpful for us. And so, uh, the plan is over the next uh, weeks to look together in uh, these, uh, this passage, these chapters of Romans chapters 12 through 16. And I would like to give it a theme and, and something to think about as we go through them, and it is this. The gospel transforms our relationships. Now, that's not the title you see up there on the screen yet, right now. But uh, as I think about Romans 12 through 16, that is a theme that I see, is that the gospel transforms our relationships. And if you've read or studied the book of Romans, you know that in chapters 1 through 11, Paul lays out the foundation of the gospel. And as he begins chapter 12, and he says, I I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. When he talks about the mercies of God, he's referring back to all the ways God has displayed his mercy, the ways God has shown his mercy, most immediately in the the immediate recent context to the people of Israel. But but all through Romans 1 through 11, he makes it clear that that the gospel is for everybody, not just the Jews and not just the Gentiles, but for everybody. And it's the mercies of God, God's kindness, God's pity on us through which he, he provides salvation for us. In fact, the first few chapters are about the righteousness of God that he requires of all mankind. God requires us to be perfectly righteous. But we don't do that, do we? We, we do not have perfect righteousness. So, so the next part of, of the, the, the book of Romans is about the righteousness that God gives. So God is righteous. He has righteousness. God requires righteousness, rightfully so. But we don't have it, so he gives it to us. He gives us righteousness. And we can have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's his message. That's, that's what he's telling us. It's what he told them, and that's the message for us. So, so, so Romans 1 through 11 about, is about the righteousness God has, the righteousness that God requires, and the righteousness that God gives, 
when we accept it by faith. And then coming into chapter 12, he starts talking about righteousness in how we live. How can we live in a way that corresponds to the, the new person that we are as, as a Christian? And one of the first marks of transformation as a Christian is how you treat other people. In fact, look with me at verses 1 and 2, which Pastor Dan preached on a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to be uh, be getting into those. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 here this morning. But let's just read Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. But here's the command, be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's talking about being a new person, being a different kind of person, and a transformation that takes place. And the starting point of that here he's talking about is in your mind. So one of the first marks of transformation as a Christian is how you treat other people. Romans chapters 12 through 16 is about our relationships with other people. It's not only about that, but that is a predominant theme. In fact, you're familiar possibly with the one another's in the New Testament, the instructions as to how we are to relate to one another and treat one another and minister to one another and so on. There are 14 one another's in Romans chapters 12 through 16. So so there's a a gold mine here. There's a nest. Uh, There's a target-rich area, target-rich zone for one another's in Romans chapters 12 through 16. In fact, the the others that he talks about here include other believers in the church. And by church, I mean the broad church, not just your church, but the church. People who hurt you, government officials, unbelievers, Christians who disagree with you about areas of personal choice, co-laborers in the gospel, and even heretics. So, so these chapters tell us and instruct us and guide us in how to have relationships with other people that are transformed by the gospel. So in these verses we're going to look at today, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, the, the theme, the, the idea that we're going to see in here is how to view your fellow Christians, how to view your fellow Christians. And he's not just talking about Christians that, that are here together with you today. We won't look at it this morning, but, but if you do look at Romans chapter 16, you, you hear Paul talking about all ki- people from all kinds of, of locations and, and church settings and, and all these individuals, some, and, and he's saying, greet this person and, and welcome this person, and this person's a co-laborer, and some of them were in house churches. Greet the church that in, is in so-and-so's house. So th- this is very broad when he's talking about Others and your fellow believers, he's not just talking about the ones that you know or the ones that you are particularly close to, like here this morning. He's talking about all of them. And I would encourage us, as as we think about how to view our fellow Christians, that you be thinking about not only the people who are here, but the people that you know who do go to other churches. The people that you see in your homeschool group. The people that that you work with in a Christian organization, school, ministry, the people that you attend school with who are Christians. When you hear about Christians in our area, when we talk about 
having a collaborative effort with Baptist Church planters and Ankeny Baptist Church, as you think about the other Christians that your life intersects, either casually or because you are placed in some setting with them or because we have a formal plan and agreement to co-labor, how should we view them? Well, look with me at uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let me read for us verses 3 through 8. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So what does this text tell us about how to view our fellow Christians? First of all, it instructs us to adjust our focus. Adjust your focus. Now, if, you're, if you pay close attention, if you look closely at, at verse 3, you notice that Paul is repeating himself with some of the words that he uses. In fact, if you look at it, it says in verse 3, partway through, that, that everyone should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Now, do you think he's trying to get us to think about something? Probably so. That's the way... Scripture works. When there is a noticeable, remarkable repetition like that, then, then it's, the idea is to make us pay attention to that. Now, you, you, see, you see the word think three times, and in the translation I'm using, the New King James, it's there three times, but actually the word think or a form of the word think is in this verse four times because when it says to think soberly, the word soberly is a word that actually means to think in a sensible way. So it's actually there four times, and each one of them has a, has a root, has a, a part in it that's the same in the original language. So the word, the word sensible or sober is another form of the word think. Now, now remember, Paul just said that, that there's something that should be changing in a Christian back in verse 2, and it's the Christian's mind so you can see the connection here, right? He's making connection. Okay, if you're going to have your mind be renewed, here is one of the ways that your mind needs to be growing and changing and to be transformed. And here he applies that renewing of the mind to how we think about ourselves in relation to other people. In fact, let's go a step further. Since in verse 2, he just talked about the will of God. He says if, you, if you're renewed in your mind, you will prove out, you will demonstrate the will of God in your life then we can say that verses 3 through 8 are the will of God for you, can't we? Here it is. Your mind is transformed. You're living the will of God. Here it is in a very specific kind of situation, your relationship with others and how you think about them. 
Now, I want to talk again about this, this word that Paul employed here to think. There are different words used in the New Testament about thinking and to think. This one has a shade of meaning, again, that Paul purposely chose that helps us know what he wants us to do. This word for think that Paul uses four times emphasizes not just the activity of thinking, but the direction of your thoughts. The way in which you view something. And that's why I chose the theme that I did, how to view, how we should view our fellow Christians, because that's what Paul's accentuating here, even with the language that he chose. And Paul used this word frequently. You can trace it through his writings. And one, one writer about this text says this, that this word signifies a steady, clear-headed understanding that the believer has about his or her world that recognizes the truth of the gospel. So you have a clear head, a clear mind, a, a, a clear view of your world that is, is that it recognizes the truth of the gospel. We might say it this way, that you view your world through a gospel lens. So if somebody asks you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you might say, I'm thinking. I don't remember where I read this. Somewhere I read about the old man sitting on the porch, and, and uh, somebody said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm thinking. And then he said, sometimes I, sometimes I, I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit. <laughs> can you do that, just sit? Yeah, sometimes you can just sit, and you're mindless, right? You're brainless. But, but let's say somebody says, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm, I'm thinking. And they say, what are you thinking about? You say, I'm thinking about snow. And then that person says, well, what are you thinking about snow? And here are some options. You might say, well, I'm thinking that I love to look at the snow. I look out the window and I see the trees and it's on the trees and I see evergreens and it's kind of draped on the evergreens and it kind of coats the world, the fresh coating of snow. And I just love to look at it. Isn't it beautiful? You might even say, you know, I remember when I was younger or maybe if you're already younger, I remember a couple weeks ago when we played in the snow. I remember building a snowman. I remember having a snowball fight. I remember going sledding. So what are you thinking about snow? Well, I'm thinking about how pretty it is. Or I'm thinking about how I used to play in the snow. Or you might say, man, I hate to shovel snow. I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, I'm going to have to go out there and shovel the snow. And I hate that, right? So, so the question, what are you thinking about snow? What are you thinking about snow? Well, I love it, I remember, or I hate the chore of, of shoveling snow. Well, here Paul, Paul is saying, when you think about people, so if we could put it in the form of a question, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about people. When that person walks in the room, or you see that person at the event, or, or that person's name comes up in some discussion of church life and, and work and on all of that, and, and somebody says, what are you thinking about? And if you were to answer, you, you, know, you might say, well, I'm thinking about that person. Because we do think about people, don't we? And then if they were to say, what are you thinking about that person? Well, here Paul is telling us what we should be thinking about those people 
about those other Christians. Here is what you and I should be thinking or ways that we need to adjust our thinking about our fellow Christians. First of all, we need to adjust our focus from I'm big and you're small to you're big and I'm small. And I'm taking that from what Paul says in verse 3 where he says, not to think. So everyone who is among you should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So instead of ourselves being magnified in our thinking to where we are the ones who are important or deserving, he says, don't allow yourself to think that way. And he's acknowledging a natural tendency that we have as human beings. We naturally have an inflated view of ourselves. And this assumes also that we tend to not only think highly of ourselves, but we also tend to compare ourselves with other people. And again, that's just natural human, human way of thinking, isn't it? We, just, we compare. We, we evaluate and we compare. We kind of place ourselves above or we might think, oh, I don't even match up to that person. So he's saying when you, when you think about other people, adjust your thinking so that you're thinking more highly of them than of yourself. Now, does that sound like something else in Scripture? Look with me over a few pages to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And Paul spells it out for us here, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 2. I'll read starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and, and the condition there is, is assumed. So in other words, yes, there are these things. We do have consolation in Christ. We do have comfort that flows from love. We do have fellowship in the Spirit. We do have affection and mercy. Fulfill my joy, verse 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowly of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So when I see that other Christian, when I think about that other Christian, my thought should be, you know what? That person's important. In fact, the value that I place on that individual and who they are as a person and their walk with God and their involvement in, in church life is more important than me. More important than mine. Now, how do we do this? So all of a sudden you find yourself, all of a sudden you realize, ah, I'm doing it again. I'm, I'm assessing and I'm evaluating and that pride is, is bubbling up and I'm thinking about that person. I'm having unkind thoughts or thoughts about how I'm somehow better than that person. How do you deal with that? Well, go back to renewing your mind. How do you do that? How do you do that? And these are simple steps, right? The Word of God. So there may be some specific scriptures like Philippians 2 that you read over and you pray through and you say, God, help me to think this way about that person. Walking in the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to strengthen you, starting your day or going into a situation where you know you're going to be with other Christians and maybe you tend to feel self-important and you say, Lord, just help me to walk in your spirit today and, ha- and have the fruit of the spirit of love, of genuine concern for other people. And just be alert to it. And allow the Holy Spirit to signal you, to alarm you, when those prideful thoughts surface in your mind. And just say, oh, there it is. And be conscious of that. And make a conscious choice to think another way. To think, you know what, wait a minute. 
I don't want to think too highly of myself here. I don't want to elevate myself in my mind above this person. I want to think of that person as being significant and valuable and important. And, and while we do that, then, then there's another element of this. It is the thought that not, not I'm somebody special, but we are all here by grace through faith. Paul uses an interesting phrase here at the end of verse 3, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And he's giving the, the basis here. So, so don't think more highly, but think soberly, think seriously, think honestly about yourself. And, and the idea is that God has given out faith to everyone. There are different ideas as to what this might refer to. I think it's probably just referring to the fact that God has given every single one of us the ability to exercise faith in him for salvation. I mean, if you go back through, through the book of Romans, you see, how, how are we saved? By faith, right? Who, who is righteous? Who has God's righteousness imputed to them? It's those who believe, those who have faith. So it's probably the idea that that we all come to God in the same way, by faith. God has given us the ability to trust him for salvation and to, by faith, serve him with our lives. None of us has received special treatment from God when it comes to salvation. Well, we've all received special treatment, but nobody has been given an advantage Nobody gets a pass. Nobody comes another way. We all come by grace through faith. We're all on an equal basis before God, right? So let's say there's a church of, I don't know, a bunch of people, 100 people or something. And I know of one person here today who walked to church. Actually, maybe a few walked from up there and walked from down there. But uh, I know one person that walked on the sidewalks today to church. Let's say there's a church where, where somebody walked to church. There's a church where somebody rode the city bus to church. There's a church where somebody drove a clunker to church that you can hear three blocks away and leaks oil on the parking lot and rattles into the parking lot. You can hear it coming. Let's say, let's say there's somebody who drives to church in uh, basic transportation, nothing fancy, but it gets them where they're going. Somebody arrives to church in uh, a Mercedes convertible, um, and somebody pulls in the parking lot in a, in a brand new F-150, loaded, um, uh, jacked up, you know, rolls in, you know, $75,000 truck, and I don't know, maybe somebody lands a helicopter out there somewhere and, and comes in, right? So, okay, so everybody... Comes to church in different ways. We're like, wow, you know. But when we come in the door and we sit before God and we are together, on what basis do we come before our God and our Father? On what basis are we accepted by Him? Faith. It's because we have trusted Christ as our Savior. It's not because of anything that we've done to get there, it's because of everything that Jesus did for us. And so as we look at each other and maybe tend to evaluate one another and other Christians, what are we thinking about? Hey, you know what? There's a brother. There's a sister. Praise God for for the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith. We're here on an equal basis where God is our Father. What a blessing that we belong to the body of Christ. What a privilege. We might look a little different. Might have a different background, different home, some different different ideas, but we're here together because of 
faith. So, do you need to adjust how you think about other Christians? You need to adjust your focus. Another part of the instruction that we find in these verses about how we should view our fellow Christians is to remember our place. Verse 4 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So if, I, if you stop right there, he says, For as, and that signals to us that he's, he's using an illustration. He's employing a metaphor here. What's the metaphor? It's, it's the human body. And, of course, we see this in Paul a lot, right? So verse 4 gives us the metaphor of the human body, and, and he says we have, there's one body, many members, we have different functions, and then the conclusion, the application in verse 5, so in a similar way, just like the human body, we, the church, and believers being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There is one body in Christ. And remember, he was not talking about one local church. He was talking about all of them, particularly the ones that these people were aware of. And he was saying, hey, you know what? We are one body in Christ. We are all members of one another, not just those within the same church that meet in the same house, in their case. We are all members of one another. And this is the reason for, for our theme of, of viewing one another, how we view one another, how we view our fellow Christians. The reason for how we do this is that we belong to a unified body. We belong to a unified body. We are one body in Christ. You see those, those two words in, uh, in verse 5, we being many are one body in Christ. Now, if you read through Paul's letters, you find that he uses this little phrase a lot, in Christ. It means that you have been joined to Jesus. There is a spiritual reality that takes place when you put your trust in Jesus as Savior. You you are put into union with Jesus Christ. So the death of Christ is as if you died. The resurrection of Christ is as if you rose again. The the life of Christ is as if you are alive and, and Christ is living his life in and through you. That is your union with Jesus. And that's a grand, profound, beautiful doctrine in Scripture. Especially you go back to Romans chapter 6 and, and Paul lays it out there in such a powerful way. You are united with Christ. We are in Christ. You are joined to Christ as an individual Christian. But you know something else? When you become a Christian, you are also in Christ with all of your fellow believers. We are all joined to Christ. We are the body of Christ. So Christians are all in Christ. So when you look at that other person and you're starting to formulate your opinion of that person, one of the most prominent thoughts that should come to your mind is, hey, we are in Christ together. The default thought that we should have about other Christians is not an exclusive one, but an inclusive one. Wow, you're Christian? You've believed in Jesus? Wow! Not suspicion? Now, of course, we, we, we're discerning because somebody can say, oh, I'm a Christian, and can mean all kinds of things, right? But if you are pretty sure, if you're confident this person has truly trusted in Jesus as their Savior, they're born again, we're in Christ together. 
And you know what's interesting? I don't know. If you go a quarter mile within this church, from this church, you think there are some true Christians that we don't know that live in a quarter mile of this church? You are in Christ with them. You belong to the body of Christ with them. Expand it out, half a mile. The whole city of Des Moines, Johnston, Ankeny, go as far as you want to go. You are in Christ with every other Christian. You are in fellowship with every other Christian. Now, there's factual fellowship and experiential fellowship, right? So we get together, we have coffee, we talk, whatever. We have fellowship with each other. But, but fellowship just means you have something in common. And even if you're not sitting in the same room or standing in the same room with somebody, you are in fellowship. You have Christ in common. You have grace in common. You have the church in common. You're a part of the body of Christ. So, so again, go a quarter mile, half a mile, ten miles, the whole city, you are in fellowship with those believers. Now, I know they're different, different um, uh, doctrinal differences people may have, and some of them are so pronounced that we're not going to have church together with them, right? But I'm just talking about a general reality of how we view other Christians. You belong to a unified body. You are one of many vital members. So remember your place. You belong to a unified body. You are one of many, as he says in verse 5, individually members of one another. Individually, so every one of you, members of, there's the one another, right? We are connected to each other. So you're one of many vital members. You're a vital member, absolutely. But so is he. So is she. And we all have varying functions. As he says back in verse 4 in the the metaphor part of it, um, he says all the members do not have the same function. And he talks more about that starting in in verse 6. So we all have varying functions. Now, I'm I'm pretty sure that you all have heard this idea. In fact, I know I've taught through it. In fact, I preached through it back in August from 1 Corinthians 12. I taught through it last fall from Ephesians chapter 4. And those are the other two key passages where Paul uses this metaphor of a body and talks about how we're all connected. I mean, those are the key passages. And then here it is again. In fact, as I was reading it, you might have thought, oh, you know, I mean, we've heard this, right? How important is the Apostle Paul to you? Jesus made him an apostle. He was one of the founders of the New Testament church, of which, that first church, of which we are, we, Northridge Baptist Church, are a descendant. We fall indirectly under his authority as an apostle. When Paul wrote, he wrote with apostolic authority delegated to him by Jesus our Lord. How important is the word of God to you? It's the inspired word, isn't it? How important is the will of God to you? Well, as a Christian, I hope it is the primary pursuit of your life. Why why am I raising these questions. 
because I want us to get the sense of importance that this idea has that we are one body in Christ, that we are members of one another, because the apostle Paul, with, with authority from Jesus, lays it out, repeats it, lays it out again. It must be important. And we are under that authority. The concept of unity in diversity is very prominent in the writings of Paul. And so we would say, based on apostolic authority, and the word of God is our authority, and the will of God governing our lives, that he talks about there in verse 2, that you and I need to give serious attention to this concept, don't we? And not just let it roll off of us. You are in Christ with every other Christian. You are in the body of Christ with every other Christian. You are in fellowship with every other Christian. You should love and welcome and fellowship with any other Christian who comes into your life. And we need to be willing to work alongside other Christians whom God brings together in the local church to spread the gospel and make disciples, and build up that church for the glory of God. So to connect the overall point of this message, how you should view your fellow Christians, how should we view them? As members of the same body. And as working together in that body, functioning together in that body for the same Lord Jesus Christ to build up his church for his glory. So we all need to remember our place as members in the body of Christ. Verse 3 is the main instruction, right? And, and if you want to isolate and identify the main instruction within that verse, it is think soberly. There's the main command. Think seriously. Think honestly. Think in the right way about yourself in relation to others. So verse 3 contains the instruction. Verses 4 and 5 contain the reason for viewing others this way because we are one body in Christ. And now verses 6 to 8 give an application of how we view our fellow Christians, and it is this. Make yourself useful. Paul says, having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us. Now, my translation has in italics these words. Let us use them. For whatever reason, Paul did not include an action here for us. He did not include a verb for us to say, oh, that's what he's telling us to do. It's not in there. So translators supply the idea, and and this probably is the idea. Because, Because as he lists some of these gifts, he's saying, okay, here's what you do with that. You have the gift of prophecy. Here's what you do with the gift of prophecy. So it's an implied imperative, we might say. There, there's an instruction here. He's, he's admonishing. He's exhorting. He's saying, okay, go do this. That's the idea. All right, so how do you make yourself useful? By valuing the ways that we're different. He repeats the idea, verse, verse 6. Having then gifts differing. So he reaches back, takes that idea that, that we, there are differences among us. We are We are different from one another. So because of that, so he's repeating what's been emphasized, which again signals it must be important. And and the point here is that, that we value this in one another. It means you don't exclude people because they're different. 
In fact, you welcome those differences. Differences are valuable contributions to the work. And then you make yourself useful by recognizing the source of your abilities. As he says in verse 6, according to the grace that is given to us. This is something I've noticed just, I guess, over the past few years as I've been studying these texts. I noticed it first in Ephesians 4. Then I saw it in 1 Peter chapter 4 where Peter talks about the gifts, the spiritual gifts. And then here it is again in, in Romans chapter 12 where Paul uses the word grace in connection with spiritual gifts. And he's, again, driving that point home. Hey, guys, this is all of grace. So what is the source of our abilities? Just like salvation is a gift of God's grace, God's free favor that we don't deserve, so are the abilities and opportunities we have to serve in the church. And again, this keeps us humble, doesn't it? I cannot do anything apart from the grace of God. I don't have the abilities I have apart from God's free favor that I don't deserve. They are included in the grace package that was given to me at salvation. Sure, we have different strengths as individual human beings, but it seems as if there's an activation and an empowerment of those abilities in a, in a distinct way that comes when we are saved that enables us to function in the life of the church and contribute to the work of the church and advance what God is doing in, in Christ's church-building work and serve others and minister to others, and it's all God's grace. And this keeps us humble, and it helps our view of ourselves and of others. So make yourself useful, again, thinking in terms of, of how we think, but then by putting all of this in action, by serving God and one another. And the, the implied instruction in these verses is use your gifts. Use your gifts. Now stay with me. Here and in Romans 12, or here in Romans 12, and in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, Paul gives examples of the kind of gifts that believers have. And it seems these were very prominent in the early stages of the church, especially the ones that had supernatural qualities that were very evident, like prophecy and tongues. And I'm not sure why Paul included these, but it's a sampling. It's not a complete list. In fact, there are probably other ways that believers are especially gifted to function in the church. But here's a sampling. So let's just look at this this sample list that Paul gives. Prophecy is delivering revelation from God into the life of the church. These are people who, who were channels of revelation from God before the scriptures were completed. And he says, if you're going to prophesy, do it in proportion to, to your faith. And again, there are different ideas about what this faith represents, but, but it's probably here what we know to be true, what we believe to be true. So when you prophesy, prophesy truth is the idea. Ministry, acts of serving, completing tasks that are crucial to life and growth in the church. In fact, the, the word underlying our word ministering is a word that sounds like deacon. And he might even be referring to those who functioned in the role of deacons. But it's probably broader than that. It's those who perform tasks, those who like to get things done, those who are comfortable just doing work. 
that's required for church life. And he says, if you're going to do that, minister again. Just do it. If this is your bent, if this is your strength, if this is your passion, serve. He who teaches, this is a gift of understanding the word of God and instructing others. And by the way, we have people here who minister in the sense that Paul is talking about. We have people here who teach, who understand the word of God and instruct others. And he's saying with with teaching, so don't just let that gift sit dormant. Don't be inactive. Bless the church. Disciple people. Influence another generation of Christians with the word. He who teaches, hey, teach. He who exhorts, this is the encourager. This is the one who says to people, hey, you can trust God. Hey, you can believe God in this. Hey, here's a way to grow. Here's a way to obey God in this situation. These are people that come alongside and they encourage us and exhort us to live according to God's word. And again, he says, do it. Do it in exhortation. He who gives. There are people who have a large heart when it comes to sharing with others and helping others. We should all be givers, right? But there are people who just have a capacity and an interest and a sensitivity to people's needs. And they want to give and they want to share with others and provide material needs. And in many cases, God has endowed them with the resources to do it. Maybe because of their job, maybe because of their home. Maybe they're just positioned in some way in life where they can just reach out and and include and help and share with others. And he says, let them do it with liberality. Literally, this is a word that means with simplicity. We might say sincerity. Don't, if you're a giver, don't do it to get attention. Don't do it to hear appreciation. Don't do it for the tax deduction. Maybe that's a benefit, but that's not a reason to do it. Don't be duplicitous in your heart. Don't do it to gain um, influence or esteem. No, just give out of love, right? Give with simplicity. Give with a sincere heart. He who leads. There are some people who naturally give direction. There was a man that uh, was, was part of our ministry when I was pastoring in Wisconsin, and uh, he, he was actually, uh, he had gone to Bible college, and he'd actually been ordained, knew the Bible very well, was a very capable teacher, uh, but he was also a full-time attorney. He was a lawyer. He was very successful in that. I guess you might call him a bivocational pastor, kind of an elder in the church, but who also had a full-time uh, secular job. He was very passionate in ministry, very dedicated to ministry, very active in the church, and also uh, active in his in his work as an attorney, and he just had a commanding presence, and is the kind of person that just would walk into a room and almost people were like looking at him saying, "What should we do?" <laughs> you know, kind of like that. And he had a commanding personality, and he would tell people what to do. But what was interesting was that in that very strong kind of driving and authoritative personality, he was also filled with the spirit. And being a spirit-filled man with that kind of drive and, and, and personality as a leader was a great gift to the church. If he were not spirit-filled, there could have been a lot of this, right? And especially as the pastor working with a man like that. I'm a little more of a low-key guy. I'm more laid back. I'm quieter. 
I'm not a big, you know, in-command type person. So, so there was a, a mutual spirit-filled relationship and, and, and cooperation that needed to happen there. And, and praise God, it did. In fact, he would say something, and he was conscious of it. He would say, I was born in the imperative mode. <laughs> He's just, you know, just that kind of guy. Now, maybe, I would say there are leaders here, but, but in, in, the, in the church at large, there are people who are in positions of leadership. They give direction. They, they, they make decisions, and they're comfortable doing that. Maybe it's a leader of a class or, or an event. But there are people who lead, and God uses them, and he blesses that. The church needs people like that. And what does he say? He who leads with diligence. The idea is don't just ride on your personality. Don't just throw a little bit of effort at it. Do your best. Put forth your best effort. Pay attention to the details. Be a careful, faithful, attentive leader. And then he who shows mercy. This is the person who's looking out for others. Notices when someone is hurting detects when someone is discouraged, realizes another person is struggling, notices when someone is missing and has a heart to help. And there are some of you who I would say have this gift. And he says, do it with cheerfulness. Don't grumble. Am I the only person that cares about other people? Am I the one that has to do this all the time? Don't fall into self-pity. Do it with joy. Praise God he's gifted you that way and do it for him. This, This sampling of gifts in the church and ways people serve in the church are send a message to us. As Paul said, every single one of us has a way of advancing the word of God or helping the work of God. There are speaking gifts, those who teach and exhort and encourage and preach. And and there are serving gifts, those who help, those who who function. And you, you have something. You have some way of being involved and participating. And the question is, where do you see yourself? What are you being asked to do? Or what can you just step up and do? The bottom line is, view others as people you can serve. How should we view our fellow Christians? As people we can serve, and people we can serve with, and people we can bless, and people that we can be blessed by. Now, just just think, if you would, please, right now, which of these ways of viewing others do you maybe struggle with? Self-importance, I'm big, you're small, versus others being highly valuable in your mind. And your, your first thought, your instinctive thought is, hey, you know what? I value you. You're important. And who you are as a person, your growth in Christ, your role in the body is more important to me than mine. Maybe it's, it's viewing yourself as, as special, the sense of I belong here, you don't. And maybe there needs to be an adjustment to, wow, we're all here because we're saved by grace through faith. 
And when you think of some other person, when you see that other person, that believer, that would be your thought. Wow, praise God, we're saved, right? By God's grace, through faith in him. Maybe it needs to be the thought of, of I am one in Christ, in the church, with every other believer. I am united. That, that is my default way of thinking about other believers is we are one in Christ. We are together in the church. We are functioning together with every other believer. And all of us have a vital function. You, me, all of us. Maybe it needs to be an adjustment you're thinking of. I need to be actively serving. I need to be serving God. I need to be serving in the church. And I need to be serving others. And be thankful for the ways that they are serving the church and serving me. And use the ability that God has given you. Will you ask God to help you have a right view of yourself, a right view of your fellow Christians, and a right view through the gospel lens of how we all fit together to build up the church of Jesus Christ? Would you pray that? Let's pray together. Let's pray for that. Let's ask God to help us have a right view of ourselves. A right view of our fellow Christians. Maybe even some come to mind right now. God, help me to have the right view of this person. And the right view of how we all fit together to build up the church of Jesus Christ. Father, may the authoritative instructions of the scriptures from the Apostle Paul to the church and to us today, which is your will, guide us, change us, make us who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.